So with a warm, warm, abundant life welcome, will you welcome Pastor Tim Riley to our pulpit? Pastor Tim. Thanks, my friend. I got this. Thank you. Bless you. Hey, before we jump into this message, you guys have that video queued up? Let's take a look at this. CF, how are you guys doing? Amen. Would you grab your Bibles or go to your app? Who has their, who has their paper Bibles? Let me see. Let me see. Yeah. Come on. Glory. Well, if you have an app, that's fine too, but meet me in first Corinthians chapter 15, first Corinthians chapter 15. And as you turn there, I'm going to share a little bit about who I am because I think often people won't trust the message until they trust the messenger. I was born in 1980. Don't judge me. Born to a father who was 44, a mom who was 29, and by the time I was 11 months old, they had already split. When I was three and a half years of age, they both had visitation rights to me, and my dad went to go pick me up from my mom's house, and there was a note on the door that said, I've taken Tim. You're never going to see him again. My mom took me to this little town in Nebraska called Franklin, Nebraska, and I spent the next 11 months there where my mom had told me that my dad had passed away, changed my last name and was hiding out in Nebraska. Now, back in the day, there was a time where social media didn't exist. Anyone remember this? The glory days. And, and before Twitter, before Facebook, when a child was abducted, they would take a picture of that child, and where would they place that picture? Milk carton. I was the second kid ever on a milk carton. That's my claim to fame. For the next 11 months, my dad was attempting to find me, went on Good Morning America, the Today Show. He went all over trying to put my picture out there, and someone went and bought some milk in Franklin, Nebraska, and they said, I've seen this kid, and they called the FBI, and my father and five FBI agents came and got me. 
took me back to Los Angeles where I grew up. And while I was down there, my mom had to, she went to prison. She attempted to kill herself while in prison and she failed. When I was seven, I got to see my mom a little bit more regularly. When I was seven and a half and eight, she developed cancer. When I was eight and a half, she died. And it made me a pretty angry kid. It made me upset with uh, people that had good relationships with their parents because I lost my mom at such a young age to the point where when people would talk about God, I didn't believe in him. But if he was real, I hated him. Throughout my childhood, my adolescence, I uh, did some stuff in Los Angeles. Then I moved up here. I'm going to spare you because of time. You can Google it if you want. But I did some stupid things. And then when I was 13, we moved up to Santa Clara. And I started, I, I eventually went into high school. And I had these very frustrating, very annoying people called Christians come and try to talk to me about Jesus. And I wanted nothing to do with it. In fact, I would argue with them. I would make them feel stupid. I would ask questions. If God is so good, how could he allow my mom to die when I was so young? I actually talked three of these Christians out of their faith. By God's grace, I've baptized two of them back into the faith. Hallelujah and glory. (laughs) Anyone becoming a senior or younger than a senior in high school? Raise your hand. Come on. Come on. Let's talk. All right. All right. All right. Young men, don't do this. All right, in high school, talking Christians out of their faith. And then my senior year, I went to the prom with one girl. I left with another girl. Don't do that. But the girl that I left with was a Christian. And she started inviting me to church. And I was like, no. And she'd invite me again. I was like, no. And she kept inviting me. I was like, no. But she was cute. So I went. And so I would go to church and I would sit in the back row. If you're in the back row, raise your hand. Just raise it proud. Come on. Yeah. Cheap seats. And I would sit in the back row and the pastor would try to engage me every single week and he'd try to talk to me. And I'm not going to tell you what my favorite sports team is because he tried to engage me with that. But I love baseball and my son's name Boston. So there. And so <clears throat> my, after going to the church for a while, the pastor eventually sat down with me and said, hey, he brought his Bible one week and he said, hey, I know you don't believe in this, but how would you like to at least find out what you don't believe? And I was like, sweet, I'm going to talk this pastor out of his faith fail. And so he and I would sit down and we would study and I would ask him questions about God. And I just got to be honest, he didn't have the best answers, but he loved me and he pointed me towards Jesus. And we met for a while and we continued to meet. And then I was, uh, I was really into cars when I was 19. Any car people up in here? All right. And so I wanted to buy this car. I'm going to, some of you are going to be like, that car sounds old and lame, but it was a 1993 twin turbo Toyota Supra target top six speed. Yeah. Yeah. Fast and the Furious, the orange car, that one, the original. And so I I won this car. I didn't have enough money to buy it, but my girlfriend's dad said, I'll lend you the money. Woo, mistake. And so I bought the car, but when I was 19, I didn't understand the difference between full coverage insurance and liability insurance. Anyone know where this story is going? Six days after I bought the car, 650 horsepower, 18 pounds of boost. I'm jumping on 880, going towards Fremont. It's a light rain. Yeah, and all of a sudden the back tires start to peel out and I'm jumping on 880 in the middle of traffic and the car starts to spin and I run into the median and it crashes, close my eyes, expect to get taken out by another car, open my eyes, all the cars are stopped. My girlfriend at the time and one of my, uh, one of my close friends who was a mechanic, both believers in Jesus, came to my rescue and they looked at the car and they looked at me and they said, you're blessed. And I was like, nah, I'm lucky. And they're like, you're stupid. 
So now I owe the money to my girlfriend's dad because I didn't have the proper insurance on it. And I live in the Bay Area and it hasn't been cheap here for like 40 years. And so I can't afford to pay rent and pay for this car. So my girlfriend's dad comes to me and he says, why don't you come live with us? Why don't you come live in our home and, and you can pay me back. You don't have to pay rent. Just pay us back for the car. What choice did I have? I started to go and I started living in their house and every evening they would pray over the meal and after we'd eat, they'd take the food away and my girlfriend's dad and I would talk about who Jesus is. And I would ask questions. I gotta be honest, he didn't have the best answers, but he pointed me towards Jesus. And then over some time, that girl decided to break up with me and I thought, well, kind of be awkward to still live here. I mean, we'd probably run into each other. It's not that big a house. (laughs) And so I, I decided to move. I was going to move back down to Los Angeles. This was in Santa Clara. I was going to move back down to Los Angeles. And my best friend who I went to high school with said to me, Hey, Tim, my family doesn't want you to leave. Why don't you come move in with us? Rent free until you get back on your feet. And I was like, wow, what choice do I have? So I decided to stay up here. And I lived in my best friend's house with this family. But here is the weird part. I still went to church. Even though I didn't believe, even though I didn't want to believe in a God, I still went to church. You know why? Because it was safe. And I would sit in the back row and they would lead worship and they would preach and I would just kind of sit there, but I wouldn't do anything with it. And then someone came to me one day and said, what do you think Christianity is about? And I said, dressing nice and acting holier than thou. He said, no, Christianity is based on one event in history. I said, what? He said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I was like, dead men tell no tales, like I've been to Disneyland. And so I was like, yeah, all right. So I started to look into the resurrection of Jesus. Spoiler alert, he rose. And so I'm studying, I'm looking into this, I'm trying to disprove it. And God just got a hold of my mind. June 13th, 2001, I'm sitting in a worship service similar to this. And I'm in the back row. And this excitable African-American man is leading worship. And I'm about to date myself. You ready? Singing, shout to the Lord. Yeah. (laughs) And in the middle of that song, as I was looking at the worship pastor and this beautiful blonde who was standing next to him singing, who I eventually ended up marrying. What, what? In the middle of that song, I felt like God put his arm around me. He said, Tim, I've got you. Not like Morgan Freeman voice, but like in an impression. You know what I mean? And so I walk up to that blood, I walk up to Aaron, and I'm, I'm tearing up, and I say, Aaron, I don't exactly know what happened, but in the middle of that song, I felt like God put his arm around me, and he said, I've got you. And she started to cry. I was like, why are you crying? She's like, you gave your life to Jesus. I said, I did what now? <laughs> huh. The very next week, I got baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And then, thank you. And then the very next day, all right, I don't recommend this, but the very next day I started a Bible study with like six friends. And the only answer to any question I knew was Jesus. Like that was it. (laughs) And in God's grace or wrath, he decided to grow that group. We were six, then we're 12, then 24, then 48, then a hundred in like three months. And I was like, Jesus. And so I was like, I better study and learn some more answers. But the irony is Jesus is still the answer. Amen. And so, so I'm, I'm there and people are coming to faith and I'm excitable. That's why I, I was so excited about just Jesus using me. And then drama happened at the church. I know that doesn't happen in Mountain View, but down in Sunnyvale, that happens. <laughs> and so I ended up leaving the church and we ended up at this church in Cupertino. And I was meeting with that same man who was leading worship the day I gave my life to the Lord. 
And we were meeting, and then eventually he invited my girlfriend at the time, Aaron, to come, and eventually it became premarital counseling. He straight out Jedi mind tricked us. We didn't even know it was happening. And then we got married in, uh, I better get this right, July 12, 2003, we got married. I think we have a slide of that. And we got married, yeah, when I was fresh-faced, a little. And so, so we got married, and it was exciting, but here's kind of where the story goes right side, because I was a follower. I was a believer in Jesus. I was sharing Christ with people. We get married, and we decide we want to buy a house, and it was 2003, and there were no houses to be bought, not for the kind of money I was making. So we decided to move out of the area. And I don't like to mention the name of the city, but it's over by Modesto, right below hell. And we lived there for about four years. <laughs> and while we lived there, I, I just, I just got to be honest with you. While we lived there, I stopped being a good husband. I got addicted to some stuff on the internet that I shouldn't have been addicted to. And God was using this to prepare me for something, but I didn't know it at the time. And so, so we were there, and then eventually I wasn't really involved in any church, and we decided to move back to the Bay Area, and there's this African-American man who's leading worship at this church, in, different church in Sunnyvale, and he invites us, and I'm like, okay, and so we go. And I just got to be honest, I didn't like it, but my kids did, so I was stuck. Anyone? No, don't raise your hand. No, no, no. And we started to go to this church, and the pastors came to me, and they said, Tim, we haven't had a young adult ministry in over 20 years. How would you like to start one? And without any prayer, just pride. I said, yeah, I could do that. So I start to build a team. And on October 12, 2009, we're going to start this young adult Bible study. But I, I had gone for a bike ride the day before. That's like my favorite thing, exercise. I ride past Levi and listen to your pastor on podcast all the time. But as I'm, as I'm riding my bike, I come back and I come to the house and, and I walk in and I ask my wife, hey, where's our oldest, Reagan? And she says, well, she's taking a nap. And I said, I was gone for three hours. She's still taking a nap? Yeah. Could you go get her? My wife goes, sure. She walks down the hall. And as she walks down the hall, all I hear from my wife is, ah! And from that, ah! I thought my daughter was dead. I ran down the hall, turned the corner, and I see my daughter underneath a blanket with a blanket over, or underneath a blanket, and she's convulsing. I pull the blanket off of her head. Her eyes are in the back of her head. She's choking on her own vomit. We take her temperature. She won't stop seizing. She has 108 temperature. And for the next 28 minutes of living hell, I had to watch my daughter seize and I couldn't do anything about it. We're praying. I'm holding hands. EMTs are coming. I'm making them pray with me. I'm like, come on. Eventually, she stops seizing. We get in the ambulance. We're driving towards the hospital and I'm, not, I'm afraid my daughter's going to be brain dead. That's a lot of time to possibly not have oxygen to the brain. So that night, we're, they're doing tests on her, but she's doing nothing. And that night, I remember my mother-in-law brought me my Bible. And I remember sitting by my daughter. I think we have a slide of that with my wife. I was sitting by my wife. Yeah, right there. My wife's just kissing our little two-and-a-half-year-old. <clears throat> but she's not talking. She's not doing anything. I'm so afraid she, her brain's fried. Mother-in-law brings me my Bible, and I open it. You ever open it and start reading and go, why did I open it to this page? I went to the book of Job, looks like Job, and I start to read through it, and it's this conversation, I know you've been taught this, it's this conversation between God and Satan, and Job is someone who follows the Lord, praises the Lord, and, and Satan says he only praises you because of his good life, and God says he'd praise me anyway. You can do whatever you want, you just can't kill him. You guys know the story, Job starts to lose everything. 
He starts to lose his crops. He starts to lose the things that make him money. He loses his children. And this is messed up. Can we just be honest? Sometimes the Bible's messed up. All he gets to keep, a bitter wife. That's messed up. Don't say amen, men. (laughs) Glory. And so I remember praying this prayer, and I remember the exact time. I've got that kind of mind. 3.52 a.m., October 12th, 2009. I prayed this prayer after reading, Naked into this world I came, naked I shall leave. I shall continue to praise my Lord. I remember praying this prayer. God, if you've got to take my firstborn, if if you've got to allow my firstborn to be brain dead, whatever it is, Lord, your will be done. We're going to trust you. The next morning, nothing changes. Eventually, they let us take her home, hoping that she'll just snap out of it. We let her sleep in our bed. It's the only time we ever let her sleep in our bed, just saying. And she's at the foot of our bed. 36 hours after the seizure, we wake up 7 a.m. in the morning. We wake up, look at the end of our bed, and our oldest daughter is jumping up and down like nothing ever happened. She, she hears her sister Lorelai, who's uh, six months at the time. She hears her crying in her own room. Reagan jumps off the bed, runs down the hall, sees stuffed animals, sees balloons and flowers. She turns to me and she goes, Daddy, is it my birthday? No, babe, you don't remember the hospital? What hospital? It's like nothing ever happened to her. God got my attention. And I started to study with people. I started to open up the word of God with people that were far from Jesus. Started to meet with them at Pete's because it's holier than Starbucks. Amen. Yeah. And I would meet, and I was meeting with 13 different people at the time individually, and we would meet, and I would point them towards who Jesus is through the scripture. I'd answer their questions, but I'd point them towards Jesus and the scripture. And then June 1st, 2010, I get a phone call from a police officer. What's your relationship to Mike Riley? That's my father. I'm really sorry to let you know, but we found him dead on his bathroom floor. He's been here a while. My dad lived in Phoenix. I hadn't seen him in about six weeks. I hadn't talked to him in about a month. But in that moment when I found out he died, my mind went directly back to about six months prior where my oldest daughter is in the living room dancing around, having a really good time. And I'm sharing with my father who is an agnostic, sharing with my dad who Jesus is, sharing with my dad about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not spiritually, but physically. And my dad puts his hand out and he says, Tim, I don't want to believe So it was in that moment when I found out that he died. If I'm really honest with you, I wanted to give up my faith. Ever been there? So angry at God. But God met me right where I was. And he taught me two things. And these two things are pretty imperative. And so if you're someone who takes notes, there's going to be a test at the end of the sermon. So start taking notes. All right? First thing he taught me was there's a savior and his name's Jesus. He saves. My job's not to save. God does the heavy lifting. He just wants our effort to be fixated and have a posture of, yes, Lord, whatever you'd have me do. So we're not the Savior. He is. And so that was really freeing because all my job is is to share. Hallelujah. The other thing he taught me, which was a little harsher, but it was what I needed to hear at the moment, he said, heaven is real. Hell is real. God loves you so much, he gives you what your heart desires. So if you want him, church... If you praise him because he's God, you get what your heart desires for eternity. And man, this worship was awesome, but I got to assume heaven's even better. And so you get what your heart desires, but God is so good that if you don't want him, he doesn't force himself on you. 
He gives you what your heart desires. And I'm not talking about the people that are atheistic and say, I don't want nothing to do with that God. I don't believe it. I'm not just talking about them. I'm talking about the people that come in week after week and say, yes, Lord, and then walk out the doors and forget what you were doing. So if you want him, you get what your heart desires. If you don't want him, you still get what your heart desires. And that was June 1st, 2010, when I found out my dad died. Since that day, I haven't shut up about Jesus. I have the opportunity to share with others in church contexts and and corporations and colleges and high schools and airplanes and Pete's Coffee and even at Starbucks sometimes. And I have the opportunity to share who Christ is. And so I know my father's death was not in vain because God used it to catalyze the gospel through my life. I'm married to my best friend, Aaron. We have four amazing kids, Reagan, who's 10, who's either going to be the president of the United States or an extortionist or both. I'm not really sure. Lorelai, who's eight, the one next to my wife, Lorelai, who's eight, she, lo- she wants to be a veterinarian. She loves kids. She loves everyone except for Reagan, her oldest sister. Evangeline is the one on my lap, Evie, little Evie. She's so beautiful and she knows it and she tries to get away with stuff because she knows she's pretty. And then Boston, my one and only son, hallelujah, because we done. Boston, my son, who, who I love, who is amazing, who's going to be this, uh, this amazing linebacker for Stanford one day. Hallelujah. Amen. I already told coach. So that's my family. So I lead a ministry called Compelled, where we train people how to share their faith and how to disciple. And I accidentally planted a church in Sunnyvale. I can't even tell you how it happened. It was all God, but we planted a church in Sunnyvale that meets Sunday afternoons. And so I'm very excited to be here. So here's my one question. Have I given you enough time to find 1 Corinthians chapter 15? (laughs) Hallelujah. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is written by Paul. Paul the apostle, the one who was against Christianity, killing Christians. And all of a sudden he found Jesus. He met Jesus alive after he died. And everything changed for him because it's impossible to experience Jesus and not change. And so Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And if you're familiar with the context, the church in Corinth tore up from the floor up. All right. This church was just messed up, but you know what? They're like us. And Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And this was the verse that hijacked my eternity when I was a 20 year old trying to say, God, there's no way you're real. And yet I'm talking to you weird. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Think about that for a second. If I'm going to try to get you to believe something, if I'm going to try to get you to believe in some religion, in my doctrine, in my scripture, in the thing that is how you can become whatever it is, if I'm trying to convince you of something, am I going to tell you how to get out of the faith in the book? No, it's not logical. And what Paul is saying is, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, this campus is amazing. I'm coveting, sorry, Lord, but this campus is amazing. But hear me, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this might as well be a mall. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, your worship is in vain. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, your faith is useless and you're still in your sins. And I read this verse And over some time, it hijacked my eternity because it went from here to here. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. I don't want you to miss that. So maybe you're struggling. Maybe you have doubt. You probably have doubt in other Christians, and I doubt us too. But the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. 
And I don't want you to miss that. So every time I preach, every time I have the opportunity to open the word of God, every time I get to disciple someone and pour into them, I'm always fearful of a specific thing. And you guys probably saw it in the video. It's hardness of heart. And hardness of heart happens when you hear the truth of God and you ignore or disobey. That's on the test. Hardness of heart happens when you hear the truth of God and you ignore or disobey. So think about how some of us do church. We come trying to get our pep talk. We come going, Pastor Brian, bring it. And we take notes and we get excited and we're pumped up. But then we walk through those doors and forget what we just heard. And it happens very subtly. I don't know if you notice this. Your heart over time just subtly starts to harden. Church, I don't want to be about that anymore. I want us to be a people that when we hear the word of God, we are ferocious about making sure we do what Jesus says for us to do. Amen? So turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. A good friend of mine was here a few months ago. Uh, I'm totally name dropping because I love him, Ephraim. He was here a few weeks ago or a few months ago, and he brought Matthew 28. And I'm just going to key in on specifically three verses from it. But Matthew chapter 28, his sister Valerie was sharing just about this idea of going and making disciples and sharing our faith. And I just want us to spend some time in this little bit of text, but I trust that it's going to change our hearts and grow us more into the likeness of Jesus if we would not ignore what God's about to say to us. So Matthew is written by a guy named Levi. Levi was a tax collector. And so don't think IRS agent. Think ISIS sympathizer in this context. A tax collector was someone who was a traitor to his own country, and he was collecting money for Rome from the Jews so the Romans could take over the Jews. And Levi, this Jew who's a tax collector, is at his tax booth, and Jesus walks up and he says, follow me, and Levi leaves everything. So now he's following Jesus, and if you know this from Luke chapter 5, Levi then throws a party, and he doesn't have dignified guests. Who does he have? Tax collectors, prostitutes, people that are messed up, and he invites them, and then the Pharisees come. And if you're not familiar with the Pharisees, if, if the Bible were a Western, the Pharisees would wear the black hat, right? And the Pharisees show up, and they're treating these disciples of Jesus, and Jesus like, we can't believe you're hanging out with these sinners. And Jesus sticks up for his disciples, because Jesus sticks up for his church, And he shows up and he looks at these Pharisees and he says, I didn't come for the healthy or the righteous or the, let me paraphrase, the self-righteous. I came for those who knew that they were sick. Do you know that you're sick, church? Do you know that you need the antidote and that antidote is Jesus Christ? So Levi, Matthew, writes this. That was all context. Sorry, I'm long-winded. So Matthew writes this at the end of Matthew. There's no Matthew 29. Matthew 28 And Jesus is around his disciples, and they're up on the side of a mountain, I believe, and they're having a conversation, and Jesus is talking to these people that have been following him after he's lived the perfect life you can't live, died the death you deserve to die, and physically risen from the dead. And Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says something that most of us know, and I'm going to do it in NIV, nearly inspired version, don't judge me. That's where I memorized it. Then Jesus came to them and said... All authority. You know what all means in Greek? All. (laughs) All authority in heaven and on earth. Stop. Jesus is saying all authority is his. It is all his. There is nothing that's not under his authority. What's the root word of authority? Author. 
He's the author of all things. All things are through him, for him, and by him. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. Therefore, and I know you've been taught this. Therefore, when you see therefore in the scripture, what's the therefore therefore, you ask? Because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Therefore, go. It doesn't say come. It doesn't say sit. It says go. We could write it. We could do an entire series just on that word. Go. But then he continues and he says, go and make. Think about make for a second. Those of you who cook, you essentially take some ingredients and you put it together and you make something, don't you? And he says, go and make people that sit in the pews on Sundays. Nope. People that don't watch rated R movies unless Jesus is crucified in them. Nope. You guys messed up laughing at the crucifixion. Go and make disciples. Now think about this word for a second. It's two words compounded together, isn't it? It's a disciplined pupil. You see that? Disciples. A disciplined pupil. Go and make disciples. And then it says, of all nations, one of the greatest things about living in Mountain View and the South Bay area, and you've heard this before, is all the nations came to us. Woo! That's fantastic. Because I'm lazy and I don't want to go on a plane. (laughs) But Jesus literally said, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations. Every tongue, every tribe, every skin color. Go and make disciples. But he says disciples, disciplined pupils. And then he says baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, I just, I just need to talk to you for a second because here's one of my fears with Christianity because I didn't grow up in it. So I, I'm, I'm just a little different sometimes when I look at how we do Christianity. We treat baptism like the finish line when it's the starting blocks, church. And our faith is a marathon. Our walk with Jesus is a marathon. And he says, go and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Yes, let's baptize people. Let's point them towards Jesus and have them confess that he is Lord and put them underneath water. But the word that Jesus uses is baptizo. It means to immerse. And so even though I totally agree with baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, I think there was a double meaning here. Because I think he also wants us to teach people about our God, who is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So when we think about discipling, we don't just say, believe in this and come and be baptized and you're good. But when we think about making disciples, we make sure that people understand that he is, our God is one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's not an egg. It's not water. It's totally beyond our understanding. But our God, we need people to know who our God is. Is. So he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And here's why I specifically think he wants us to teach who our Trinity God is. Because the next part says, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded. I love that Jesus makes this clear. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded. And you're going, oh man, Leviticus is so boring. Yeah, it is. Okay, can we just be honest about that? But when the Pharisees came to Jesus in Matthew 22, they said to Jesus, trying to stump him, trying to get him to make himself more important than Moses so they could put him on a cross. They came to him and they said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, well, he quoted Moses, didn't he? 
Deuteronomy 6. He said to love the Lord your God with all your soul, strength, and mind. And the second is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So if you want to know if you're making disciples, do you love God and do you love others? And, and I mean the people on the 280. I mean the people on Facebook that feel like it's their job to talk about anything and everything, anytime anyone posts anything. To love God and to love your neighbor. To love others. So he says, teach them to obey all that I have commanded. And then he says something so profound and so needed for us, and we need to understand this, church. He says, and surely I will be with you always till the very end of the age. I don't, I don't know if you realize how freeing that is. Because we don't make disciples of us. We don't need more me. We don't need more you. We need more Jesus. And so we make disciples of all nations. Of who? Jesus. And he says, surely I'll be with you always till the very end of the age. So I'm going to say something that may sound off. But I'm going to just allow me to explain it. Okay? We call Matthew 28, really 16 through 20, the Great Commission. Now, when the Bible was originally penned, the Great Commission was nowhere to be found. The term. This scripture was definitely there, but the coined phrase, the Great Commission, did not exist. In fact, it was coined, I think, by a monk in the 700 AD. And he came up with this idea, this is the Great Commission. And then when the King James Bible came out, many centuries later, and in English especially, they put above this passage, the Great Commission. I want to change it for us today. Not the Bible, but just this term. Because Jesus said he'll be with us always till the very end of the age when we go and make. So you know what it is? It's not the Great Commission. It's the Great Co-Mission. And we get to do it with Jesus. And we get to point people towards Jesus. And we get to have people understand that Jesus is risen, Jesus is Lord, and they can actually bow down and follow him. Oh, the great commission. So good for you and I to be a part of the great commission. Now, I don't have a tattoo. It totally sounds like this has nothing to do with what I was just talking about, but it does. I don't have a tattoo. And I'm not against tattoos. I think some tattoos, oh man, I'm for them. They're cool. I don't have one yet. But if I had one, here's what it would say. This is on the test. What's Tim's tattoo? This is what it would say. Disciples, disciple. Disciples, disciple. So for followers of Jesus, if we have said, yes, Lord, you are God and I am not. God calls you to be a disciple. And disciples, disciple. And some of you are kind of freaking out. Well, I don't disciple anyone right now. No, no, no. I, I hope that you would. Pastor Brian hopes that you would because pastor's job is not to disciple everybody. The pastor's job is to make sure everyone gets discipled in the church. But our job is to equip you to go and disciple. And so disciples, disciples. So you, when you see the beginning of the Great Commission or the Great Commission, it says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make. You can also read it to say, as you go disciple. So everywhere you are, every person you come in contact with is an opportunity by God for you to actually pour into their life. You don't have to be weird waiting for them to sneeze. Oh, God bless you. So about God, you don't have to do that. 
No. We need to be a people that find people and go, hey, how are you doing? That's the greatest question ever. And when they say fine, say no, really. How are you doing? Floodgates. We quoted 1 Peter 3, always be prepared to give an answer. You know that word answer? It means a defense. And church, can I just tell us that we in the Christian church today treat a defense as an offense and we offend people? That's good. That should be on the test. We treat a defense as an offense and we offend people. And yet, really what we're called to do is to answer the questions that are asked. If you start to read through the Gospels, you start to read through the book of Acts, you start to notice that every time the Gospel was shared, it was because someone was inquisitive. Hey, what are you all doing? Gospel. What's different about you? Gospel. How can I be saved? Gospel. But what do we do? We're totally trying to force it, aren't we? Oh, that person needs Jesus, so I'm going to run at them. And yet they get treated. They get treated. They know it. They know that you're just trying to get someone saved. And yet God is the one who saves. So our job is to be prepared with an answer. Our job is to pray. Our job, I'm going to step on some toes. Our job is to live in such a way that other people want our God. Not just in here, out there. So don't ever allow your life to be an excuse for someone else to not follow Jesus. That's good. Don't ever allow your life to be an excuse for someone else to not follow Jesus. It's going to be up here. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. It's just one verse. James chapter 1, verse 22. James chapter 1, verse 22. James, the half-brother of Jesus. Same mom, different dad. You guys get that, right? James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes this powerful book and talks about faith without works is dead. And then we go, wait, 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 wait. We're not saved by works. You're absolutely right. Well, you are saved by Jesus's work, not your own. And James is speaking to the church and he says, do not merely, verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. That's what we're called to do. And the great thing about when we disciple as we go, as we make disciples, our hearts stay soft. You know why? Because we're doing what God told us to do. I meet with, right now it's eight guys. We meet at Pete's one-on-one individually, and we meet, and we study scripture, and we talk. And if you guys just want to know how I disciple, it's pretty simple. Um, I sit down with a guy for about an hour and a half, and we talk. And the first question I ask, write this down. This is crazy. First question I ask, how are you? (laughs) And they're not allowed to say good, blessed, okay, all right. They actually share what's going on in their lives. And as they share, I'm actually thinking about scripture in my mind. And I'm thinking about things that we could talk about. But to be honest, most of the guys that I meet with, we're studying scripture together. We're going through a book of the Bible because this is what sanctifies us as we do it. And so we study scripture. And then at the end of our conversation, we go through four questions, which I'm going to give to you in just a moment. But there's one man that I invest in who's quirky. And I love him. And we've been meeting for a while. He's actually in this room. His name's John. Raise your hand, John. You know you want attention. Come on, John. You can do it. Yeah, right there. Yeah, thank you. So, John. So John and I will meet, we'll meet at Pete's, we'll talk. And John always, and now he's going to hide. John always wants to know what my sleight of hand is. He always wants to know what's your ulterior motive? Because I do have an ulterior motive. When I go and hang out with my kids, friends, and parents, I want them to know Jesus. That's my ulterior motive. Everything I do has some reason to help people understand Jesus better. So John looks at me one of the times we're meeting and he says to me, he goes, Hey, Tim, why do you invest in me? And this is what I said. 
so I'll grow. Because disciples disciple, and when we invest in someone else, the crazy thing in God's economy is we grow spiritually as we pour out. So John takes it, he hears this, he goes, oh, that's good, all right, all right. So he thinks about it. And then we go to hug at the end of our time. We prayed together and then all of a sudden I go to hug him and he whispers in my ear, not awkward at all. He whispers in my ear. Hey, Tim, you're welcome. Church, there are people in this room that want to say you're welcome to you. But we got to go across the room. We've treated discipleship like a junior high dance. No one wants to go across the room. And, and I'm just going to, this is mostly for my people that are here, but like, but here's the thing. We talk so much about the older and the younger. It's not the older and the younger. It's the mature and the less mature. So if you've been following Jesus for five minutes, but you are doing what he says, you can share that with someone. If you've been following Jesus for 40 years and you haven't done anything he said, someone can pour into you. So here are my four questions. This is what I ask every single person that I spend time with. And I'm just giving this to you as an equipping opportunity because I believe we come here for two reasons. One, celebrate the fact that Jesus is coming back. Hallelujah. And the other reason that we come is to equip the saints. And if you don't know the Lord today, we're excited that you're here. We're going to give you an invitation to meet him in a tangible way. But ultimately, we're here to celebrate and to equip the saints to go out those doors and to make much of Jesus with their lives. And so here are the four questions I asked. Here's the first one. What was your big takeaway? What was your big takeaway? What was the one thing? There was a lot of stuff that was shared. You guys hear so much truth every week. What was the one thing that you're going to take away? You're going to remember it. You're not just going to tweet it. That's going to be on your heart. It's going to be something that you do. What was your big takeaway? Second question I always ask is, who can you share that with? Who will you teach that to? Who can you share that with? Who will you teach that to? Here's why I ask that question. It's not even for the person you're going to share it with. Teachers, you understand this. It's for you. Because if you know you're going to teach someone, you're going to listen differently, aren't you? And so what was your big takeaway? Who will you teach that to? Third one this is the most important because this is the application question. What is God telling you to do differently? So we've studied scripture for an hour. We've talked. We've talked about life. What is God telling you to do differently? Because this is the one where your heart hardens or it grows. What was your big takeaway? And then lastly, who will hold you accountable to do that? Who will hold you accountable to do that? Don't worship the method. Just find people in your life that you can study scripture with and talk about what God is teaching you. Allow them to share with you. Every time you hear the word of God preached every week faithfully at this place, y'all can go out and eat and you can talk about what your big takeaway is, who you can teach that to, what God's asking you to do differently and who can hold you accountable. And I promise you, I've seen it firsthand over the past few years as we've just practiced this. I've seen people grow more into the image of Jesus Christ. And that's what we want, church. Worship team, would you come on up? We're going to end. Yeah, amen. <laughs> Elders and prayer team, would you come on up also and, and stand here? Because we're going to have an opportunity to respond. Some of you, and I'm going to be very specific here. Some of you need to be prayed over because you're hurting. Maybe it's spiritually. Maybe it's physically. I'd encourage you to come up here and have some godly 
men and women pray over you. Some of you haven't trusted Jesus with your life. I'd encourage you to come up and tell someone, hey, I, I, I don't necessarily know him yet, but I want to know more. Some of you just need someone to tell you that you're going to be okay. I encourage you to have come up here and be prayed over. I'm going to end with this story. The, the time I got to have coffee with Stephen Curry. You guys heard of Stephen Curry? Yeah, this guy's awesome. He's going to win in two days. All right, so, except last time I said that he lost. So, uh, so Santana Row. You guys know Santana Row? Yeah, outdoor mall, everything's too expensive. All right, so I'm at Pete's, and I have my black tea lemonade because that's what I drink. And I walk out of Pete's, and I see Steph and his family, and they're walking towards us. And I see him, and he's got his cup from, I won't mention it, Starbucks. And as he's walking towards me, I see him, and he sees me, and I see Steph Curry, and I say to Steph, what's up? He looks at me and he goes, what's up? That was the time I had coffee with Stephen Curry. (laughs) I don't know, Steph. I love Steph. I'm for Steph. I pray for Steph. But I don't know Steph. And to be honest, he doesn't know me. If one of you said, hey, Pastor Tim Riley was talking about you. He might be like nice and be like, oh, yeah, tell him I say hi. But he doesn't know who I am. Here's my fear, church that some of us come here once a week and we sit in these seats and we look at Jesus and we say, hey, what's up? Then we leave this place and we forget who we're following. So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to worship. Come up here and be prayed for and respond to God's grace if you need. And if you want to follow Jesus, please tell one of these godly men or women. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your grace. Lord, as we respond, would this bring a smile to your face? Would this opportunity be one that truly makes much of you? God, there are men and women in this room that have not trusted you, have not said, yes, Jesus, you are enough. Lord, I believe that your grace is enough. I believe that your death on the cross was enough to free us from our sin and the penalty of it. And I know this because you rose from the dead. So God, would you do a work in this place? Would you allow the captives to be set free? Would you allow hearts to be changed and softened? Would you allow people to come in contact with the one true God? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.